talk a little bit about the food forest and the swell system out here at perimeter permaculture this is 40 acre farm it's approximately 26 acres in pasture and a little bit of a yard and another 14 that's wooded there are two pastures to the west of the property the house is pretty much in the middle and then there's the eastern pasture the two on the west is are divided into a north and south pasture and the one on the south against the road is about three acres and that's the one i decided to make the food forest from because primarily it had a hill down down in the southwest corner is the highest point on the property and it comes down from there so that pasture starts there at the corner where the two fences meet and then it comes down hill to the toward the house and then when it gets toward the house it sort of flattens out but there's about a four degree incline coming down there and that's probably the best place here to catch water so that's where we decided to go ahead and lay out a swell system i bought a a transit or a Builders level, I call it a transit. There may be a distinction. Anyway, we we went out there and laid out the um, contours with that. And in hindsight, that wasn't really necessary. When you get your operator out in a we we had a backhoe operator, and with the amount of precision that you can get with the transit, you really don't need it. Because when the guy's out there operating the backhoe, that precision is going to go away with the, that machine. You just need to give them a guideline. And so an A-frame level is plenty accurate enough. You know, you don't need the precision of, you know, pouring a slab or something like that where it's got to be dead on the money. I tried to find some specific information on the width between the swells and Never really could find anything very conclusive on that. So I just decided I picked 30 feet or around 30 feet just on my own because I knew that I wanted to be able to uh, run any kind of equipment in there that I needed to, like a tractor. And I wanted to have enough room for interplantings between the swales too, although I may or may not do that. It's really not as important as you think when you're making a swell system because when you get out there into the midst of it, a lot of the things that you may worry about tend to really go away because it's a it's a it's a big ditch, really. The main thing you want to be aware of is how you can gain access to your top point. In my case, the lowest point is near the barn, so I'm going uphill, and the swells are the swells are almost circular around this hilltop, but it ended up being more like a ridge. So they're not completely in a circular pattern. They're they're sort of circular to the uh, to the east, and then they sort of straighten out. 
north-south a little bit, and they're not completely radial. So I left spaces in between each swell for a track. So I left about, I'd say, 20 feet space between the swells that I could go up sort of through the center and then also I left uh, about 30 feet from the edges of the property line so I could go around the perimeter as well. Like I said, we used the transit to set up the swells and we had, I had, I was running the transit and I had my wife holding the pole. So I would just set the transit up and then start toward the end of the swell, which would be the beginning in this case. And then we would go, I think we'd do like five paces and then we'd put a little flag. So we would just go along like that and I would just spin the transit. And I had the number that I knew I was looking at. I don't, it doesn't matter what it was, but so I just hit that same number on the rod each time and we just use hand signals to to move her where she needed to be and then she'd set the flag and it took us about i'd say a little over an hour to do it because i had to move the transit several times so it would be probably a lot more efficient to do it with an a-frame now i i'm just i'm telling you it you may want to go out there and get a um digital level that you you can um do it all by yourself that'll alarm for you but the thing about that is if it's a bright sunny day those things don't work as well as you think they do and you really unless you're just going to be laying out miles and miles of swells you don't really need all of that an a-frame would work just as well and be a lot cheaper i think the transit cost me about two hundred dollars it's a dewalt you could also rent one from your local rental place, but if you've only got an acre or so to do, I'm telling you, build yourself an A-frame, get familiar with it, and trust it because it's close enough. It's close enough. You could also use a water level, bunyip level. I've made one of those before, and those those are really accurate, but you're going to need two people so after I got everything marked out with the flags, the trees started showing up before we were ready for them because we still hadn't had the swells dug yet. So the guy that I hired to do the backhoe work for me had never dug anything completely on contour. And it took me a little while to get them to understand what I was trying to do because you got to understand what they're used to doing is if they're going to dig a ditch, they pick an elevation they want the bottom of the ditch to be at and they keep that elevation the same. So if you're going uphill and your elevation is set, then the backhoe gets deeper and deeper as you're going along to keep the elevation the same or even putting in a slight grade so that water will flow away so it took a little convincing to get them on board with my idea that we were going to dig on contour so they wouldn't need to change the depth of the ditch so i asked him how wide his bucket was and he told me so what i decided to do i said just let's go one bucket deep and let's go two buckets wide 
And so they were saying, it's not going to hold water. I said, yeah, I know. I don't want it to hold water. And so to sort of simplify things, I just said that I was putting in an orchard because I really didn't want to go through the hassle of trying to explain the whole setup. And then they said, well, nothing will grow. <laughs> said, nothing's going to grow out here. I said, okay, well, what about those trees that are growing over there? See, my friend Bill, he's sort of old school, and he thought that I was going to go and buy a lot of peach trees and put in a a grid of peach trees like any other apple orchard or, you know, your typical sort of orchard setup. He didn't want me to lose my money, and he was just looking out for me. So after it was clear that I was going to follow through with my plan, they came out and it ended up being 11 hours of work. He wanted a minimum of eight, so that wasn't an issue. It was $65 per hour, and I think it was about 700 bucks that it cost. Now, here's where we get to the real meat of the issue. After the swells were dug and the the tailings were put on the downhill side to make the berms. The fescue was probably, you know, the top soil that held the fescue was still in there. And that was a good six inches thick and in a lot of places. And it's clumping. So it's, you would have clumps of um, grass and you couldn't even lift them. They were so big. I mean, I think some of them probably weighed a couple of hundred pounds. And and I tried to get all of that stuff pulled out of there by hand. And I managed to get one of the first um, swells done pretty good. Got most of all the fescue and big rocks pulled out. And the berms healed up and dressed the way they should have been. And that's where you're going to probably benefit by having a, an operator who's done this a time or two because you want to have all those clumps and clods either set off to the side or I don't, I don't know how else you would do it, actually. So up toward the top of the hill, there wasn't as much clay, and it was a lot easier to work the berms up there because down toward the bottom swells he for some reason he started digging those a bit deeper i wasn't mad about that or anything but he he didn't have it consistent and the ones at the bottom are a good bit deeper than the ones at the top which is okay but they were real hard to to work with because the clay was just you you couldn't get the fescue out of that stuff and after I worked the top swells and berms and got those shaped up pretty easily, you know, by hand, I was using a root rake. And then I started to jump on the other swells coming downhill. I think there's a total of four rows of swells on one side and maybe three on the other. I'll, I'll get to the reason why that is soon. Now, I think I mentioned earlier that the trees had already started to show up from the state of Missouri early. And if I didn't mention that already, then they began showing up, I think, maybe the week before the guy was scheduled to come out to do the digging. 
so I'm sitting on trees and it's warm. It it's March, but it's it's particularly warm and the trees were waking up. And so now it's a race against time because if you don't don't have dormant trees anymore, you're you're in a pickle. So we got the swells up at the top the berms straightened out so we could plant into those and so we planted those out and so every day for about a week i went out there and tried to situate the other berms but they've just got so much clay and fescue in them and my elbows are just shot that i can't i can't get these swells or rather i can't get these berms in order and so I called Bill, and he has a little uh, tractor that's got a blade on the front. And he came out and started trying to burn those up for me with the tractor. But he was just pushing the grass right back up onto the um, berm, which, you know, wasn't going to do me any good. And he said, you know what we should do is is run a, um, a basically a harrow over this grass and get it all broken up into you know small pieces and so he called the operator back and they came out and you know this was probably two weeks after the fact and they came out and dissed that stuff up and then we got the berms mounted up pretty easy after that but during this whole time i've got a hundred each of pawpaw persimmon pecan false indigo and black chokeberry in the barn that is beginning to leaf out so i'm having to put those into a a barrel of water in an effort to keep them living and so the, the trees with the smaller roots because the way we did it was with a what they call a dibbler which is kind of like a spade on the end of a bar like a t-handle with a place you could put your foot and apply pressure to it so you can it just sort of cuts through like a spade and then you wiggle it back and forth and it makes a hole and the trees the uh especially the false indigo the roots aren't that big on those so you can dibble those real easy you can probably put a tree in per minute but when you get the bigger root systems like the pecan you can't do that and i ended up having to go in with a um, pair of post hole diggers to big to dig a hole big enough to put the pecan in and so the way it went was the pecans sort of languished in the barn the longest and i think that was detrimental because of all the trees the pecans were the ones that i had the highest losses with by far the false indigo have done the best i don't know that we've even had a single tree that we lost of those i'd say 99 percent, and they've grown well and they're blooming now they're also besides being a nitrogen fixer they're also a butterfly attractant and that would be my go-to species in this part of the country for nitrogen fixation and all-around hardiness. Literally, all of those trees that we put in survived, and 
you know, we weren't being very ginger when we put those in. I mean, I slammed those in on the uphill side of the berm right there in the fescue, and those haven't grown as much, but none have died. All of the black choke berries have done really well, and that's not really a tree. That's more of a bush, and pretty much all of those have survived. I'm not sure if any are blooming or not. I haven't seen any blooming out there. I put a few in near the uh, zone two, and those did bloom this season, and they have berries on them right now, and I've never had those before, so I'm interested to see what they taste like. Now, I would say the third best tree was the persimmons. I've noticed a good bit of the persimmons out there, but they also probably sat in the barn for a good while, too. I believe if we could have had all of the um, berms ready to go when the trees arrived, we, we would have had a higher success rate. It was just the fact that they arrived early and we didn't get the berms ready for planting for another couple of weeks. That caused some of the higher losses, I think, in the pawpaws and the pecans. Honestly, I don't have good news report about the pecans. Um, I'm not sure if there are 10 still living or not. I think we would have had a much higher success rate, though, with the pecans if we would have had the opportunity to put those in right away and not have them in the uh, bare root in the barn for so long. So when we were thinking about a cover crop for the berms, because now you've got this exposed soil out there and what's going to come in, of course, weeds. So we wanted to do a cover crop right away and we wanted to think deer resistant on that and so what we came up with on that was lemon balm yarrow sage bee balm and echinacea actually the echinacea was a uh, mixture of cone flowers that i got and it had a seven variety seed mix in there and only of those only two were echinacea they were all cone flowers but i didn't realize that not all coneflowers are echinacea. So what came up was these yellow flowers. And the yarrow came up pretty good. The sage came up pretty good. We didn't really notice the bee balm at all. Um, the lemon balm was kind of hit or miss. The echinacea coneflower um, mix did really good and it looked real pretty too nonetheless we did have some weeds come in and that was primarily in the beginning was queen anne's lace the wild carrot that grows everywhere and toward the end of the season it was aster and both of those plants have real pretty flowers and you have to kind of expect a little bit of that because you're disturbing the soil and there's weed seeds in that and when you disturb them, you're naturally going to get a, a huge crop of whatever is laying out there. And that's what happened. Originally, I was out there with the weed eater trying to keep control of the weeds over the berms, just trying to impose an artificial order onto the evolution. And 
I realized pretty soon that was pointless. And once again, I, I still had the tendonitis in my elbow and I just couldn't do it anyway. So along and along, we started to get a few more trees here and there that we had ordered back in the winter. And as they would come in, we would put those out into the berms where we had enough space. So there's probably, I don't know, 20 apples out there. There's a raspberry. There's There's a cherry tree out there. There's I also put in a lot of mulberry trees this past spring, or really very recently, it's still spring, and I just took hardwood cuttings from a couple of mulberry trees I have over here in the zone two, and I just stuck those straight into the berms, nothing else, and actually those have done really well, and they are rooting so I'm happy with that. After this past winter, the lemon balm, yarrow, sage, bee balm has all really come back strongly. And this year we're going to get the um, bee balm, which is Monarda, will bloom. And it makes a really pretty flower. And it really is a good um, pollinator. It's really good for the pollinators. And... The lemon balm, the sage, and the bee balm, you've got three culinaries right there. You can make a really good tea out of the bee balm, which is sometimes called Monarda. And the yarrow is medicinal. Now, I'm not sure if the um, the coneflowers have self-seeded and are going to come back, but I think I saw that they are. Now, one of the things that I noticed with the especially the aster because it was the last one that was in bloom in the fall around september and so when those flowers died they left in place the the stalks and they're they're, they turn woody and they're probably end up being about three feet tall and what that ended up actually doing was insulating those other trees that we have stuck in there because they weren't actually even as tall so they may have taken a bit of the um, light to start with away from the trees that we planted but after they died off and just the stalks were left out there it served as a buffer against the wind it served as an insulator against the cold and it also served as a buffer against deer browse because you can see deer tracks they use the swells quite a bit to come and go but i really didn't notice any browse so i think having the weeds come up was a blessing in disguise so about a month after everything got dug we had an enormous rain event and almost a 500 year event and so all the swells filled up and so it was a very early test on the engineering and we didn't have any blowouts we did have water over top the level seal on each of the ends but we didn't have any berms blow out and so we knew we were pretty well on contour so after the really wet spring we had a very dry summer and it was fall before the swells really held any water again when we had a decent rain and we had pretty good precipitation over the winter 
I think we came in right at the average. I think it was 46, 47 inches of rain. I have a little app that sends me a uh, message every time it rains on the field. It's not really measuring my field, but there's some kind of a gauge pretty close that it gets its data from. It gives you a graph of the rainfall as it would be in an average year and the first of the year was way off the graph and then come when it came through summer it went way below the line and then sort of averaged back out toward the end of the year so the average rainfall was almost exactly what we got so almost 50 inches of rain and if you can't grow anything with 50 inches of rainfall per year you're not trying hard enough so we had a pretty harsh winter, got down to negative 10 out here one time, and I was a little fearful about how everything was going to fare, and I'm happy to report now that it's May. Things did take a little while to wake up, but besides the pecan losses, which I mentioned earlier, everything's pretty much awake out there, and it's looking pretty good. It's going to work. I can see that it's going to work, and I'm going to put more fruit bearing trees in there and i don't have any issues with putting things in there later on because i think trying to rely on a high value tree to get established in the beginning would kind of be counterproductive and i think if these false indigo trees get as well established as it looks like is going to happen then we'll be able to use those as buffers and chop and drop for more valuable trees later on. So it's an evolution. It's a process. There's no doubt that this the method does work. There's just no doubt about it. It, it stays nice and saturated the way you'd expect it to. It may not be exactly what you have, you know, in your mind's eye when it comes to how you visualize a food forest, especially if you see one that's um, mature like the one Jeff Lawton has. But I think the main thing for me is that it's an evolution and you've got to see it as an evolution and you don't control every facet of what goes on out there. After all, it's, it's nature. And so just bear that in mind when you embark on one of these designs. So I'm right up on the 25-minute mark. I think I'll leave it there. So this is Les with Perimeter Cast. Catch you next time.